Yesterday, Nova Scotia became the first jurisdiction in North America to bring in presumed consent when it comes to organ donation and tissue donation. We're going to talk about that with the man in charge. And we'll also talk about dog groomers. They're pretty upset at the fact that they are not allowed to do their job during this lockdown and think they have a good argument to get back to work. But first, we know that the first thing Biden's going to do in his presidency is axe the Keystone XL pipeline. And there are a lot of people, everyone's got an opinion on how the Canada should respond to Biden's Keystone XL decision. Here's Anime uh, Paul, who is the leader of the Green Party. Uh, she was talking to Global News, and here's what she had to say. We should be working with the United States to, rather than pushing them uh, to reverse the commitment to end the Keystone pipeline, we should be using our diplomacy to work with them uh, to create a North American carbon border. Uh, This is something that I proposed all the way back when I was a leadership candidate. It's something the Green Party is highly, has proposed since then. Um, It is something that is one of the most impactful things we can do, not only to protect our businesses uh, here, but also to promote um, greenhouse gas emissions reductions in other countries. Enemy Paul joins me on the line right now. Thanks so much for joining me. This is the first time we've spoken. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So we heard you in that clip talk about a North American carbon border. What What is that? What does it look like? Give us details on your on what you're exactly you are proposing here. So this is something that uh, President-elect Biden uh, promised in his campaign platform during the presidential election and something that the European Union is just on the cusp of adopting themselves. What it is, is essentially um, a tax or a tariff on goods that certain goods that are imported into a country from high polluting countries or countries that have weak climate, um, climate uh, um, you know, targets. So gas, um, greenhouse gas emission targets. And what it does is two things. First, it protects the companies in your own territory that are actually doing their job and, uh, and working hard to reduce their greenhouse gases. Uh, and then it creates an incentive from th- those countries who don't want to be uh, taxed at the border. Um, they, it creates an incentive for them to clean up their act and make sure that they're uh, meeting their commitments as well. Yeah, there are a lot of people that say that uh, pollution is not our problem. It's it's largely, you know, there are other uh, countries that are largely responsible for uh, pollution. So this is a way we can lead by example. Is that what you're recommending? Well, it's one of the ways that we can have uh, the greatest impact outside of our borders in getting uh, greenhouse gas emissions down. And, you know, it's also one of these things that, frankly, if the United States is really committed to this and Joe Biden had it very clearly in his platform, uh, we have if we want to remain competitive, even with our closest ally and trading partner, we're going to have to do it in any case. So it's much better to do it in a combined way as a North American carbon border uh, than it is to do it uh, separately or to be left uh, behind and end up having perhaps to uh, pay taxes ourselves on our imports to the United States. So, you know, this is one of these things where it's just a win on on every front. And uh, it's something that I really hope instead of talking about pipelines, our prime minister is going to be talking about with President-elect Biden. So this is about uh, getting back to a collaborative approach between the two countries as well. Absolutely. This is just an extraordinary opportunity to really collaborate in a positive way on all of the files that we share with the United States. 
the climate is absolutely one of them. And Joe Biden has made it very clear that this is one of his top priorities. He has a cabinet position just created for the climate with a very senior senator, Senator John Kerry. Uh, so we can talk with them on that and how we can make sure North America is the most competitive and the greatest leader on the climate, but also on trade, making sure that we have the strongest uh, worker and environmental protections as well. Uh, you know, this is an opportunity for us to make sure that anything that can be better through cooperation with the United States is made better during this administration. Now, Jason Kenney's government, obviously not happy about the announcement. They've invested at least $1.5 billion in the Keystone XL uh, um, pipeline with billions more in loan guarantees. Um, he is now... Isn't that something? It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. But, you know, if you're, out, if you're out living uh, out West, which I have in the past, I've lived in Alberta, it's, you know, you can say a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. That's just simply uh, not true until you get out there. The, you know, everybody has, uh, you know, is bound by the fact that we live on the same landmass, but their situations are different. So there's a lot of Albertans that were can- uh, really counting on this Keystone XL pipeline. And and the premier, uh, Jason Kenney, is urging Biden to show respect for Canada, sit down and talk before canceling it. What do you what do you say about that? I'm, I mean, is it even worth worth wasting his breath on? And, and how would um, what you're proposing help Albertans? Well, first, uh, you know, you're you're right. This is a very human thing, first and foremost. And as someone whose uh, brother worked up until uh, you know, the middle of last year out in the oil patch in Alberta. He'd been living out in Alberta for a number of years. Uh, I, I know the human face and he worked as a roughneck, just to be clear, you know, on a crew. Uh, I know that that's the human face of this. Uh, Premier Kenny was was reckless with the future of those workers. He knew that it was very likely that this project was going to be canceled uh, because President-elect Biden had said so for a very long time, back to the Obama days. Uh, so doubling down on that investment and not using that money to diversify the economy out there was a really um, reckless thing to do. And so he's going to have to be accountable for that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, what the federal government can do is exploit the great potential that uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan have uh, in terms of geothermal energy, green infrastructure, um, all of the kind of green jobs that are totally transferable on day one that pay more money, that are more stable, and that don't require any additional degrees or elaborate training. Um, 45% of the people in the states who hold those green jobs, uh, those are people that came straight from the oil patch with no extra degrees. So that's where the jobs of the future lie. Uh, Any responsible premier is going to be investing in that. Any responsible prime minister is going to be investing in that. You feel we need our own climate minister. What would that role require and them to do? And what are the qualifications that you think that minister would need? Well, I take a page from um, President-elect uh, Biden on this one and his appointment of a very, very senior senator and um, former presidential candidate John Kerry. Uh, the idea here is that you send the signal that this file is so important and requires such special attention that you're going to appoint one person to be thinking just about that day and night and looking across government uh, to make sure that everything that can be done to support that agenda is being done. And so that's the, that's the equivalent that I'm looking for here. 
this is the chance of a lifetime that we have uh, to put in place a green recovery that's going to create the jobs of the future, that's going to take advantage of the greatest economic opportunity since the Industrial Revolution. And that requires the, the full attention of one minister in, in the cabinet. And of course, with Joe Biden's new climate czar, we want to have our equivalent here that can be speaking with that person on a regular basis on how we can work together in North America to be the most competitive green uh, zone in the world. You brought up John Kerry. Anybody in mind here? Oh, no. I mean, well, if it, you know, if it becomes our choice, if, if we become the government, then, you know, I have lots of great options in mind for that. But uh, what I do know is that it has to be someone who is truly committed to walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And, and you know, because we've arrived at the end of it. I said yesterday uh, that as we as we hear the prime minister say yet again that he's going to be using our very precious political and diplomatic uh, capital trying to keep the Keystone project going, even though Biden has invested a lot of his political capital in canceling it, uh, that, uh, you know, it's clear that uh, Canada is, is not headed down a path of climate leadership. We can't keep building pipelines and putting new offshore exploration projects online and fracking um, and, um, you know, still talk about being a climate leader. So, Whoever is selected for this role, and perhaps it's someone that's outside of government altogether, uh, it should be someone who is absolutely committed to being a climate leader. Can I just pivot for a second and change direction if I could? And I don't want to blindside you because this is the first time we've we've spoken, so I don't want to get on your bad side here. Um, (laughs) But we've got a problem with our vaccines and especially Pfizer. You know, we have just heard that the uh, European commission, the head of the European commission reached out to Pfizer directly and said, you know, what can you do about this holdup? We know you're slowing down, you're retooling uh, things in Belgium, but we really need your help here. And they're going to be delayed a week. We're finding out now because of that, we're going to be delayed even more than we thought, probably four weeks here. So getting vaccines into Canada. So we obviously are in great need as well as the rest of the world. Do you think Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has to come out, hold a press conference and tell us what exactly went wrong? I think that the key to getting through this pandemic and particularly um, our vaccine distribution uh, process is really transparent information. Uh, I've been really disappointed as one of the opposition leaders that Prime Minister Trudeau has not reached out to any of us uh, to, uh, to brief us uh, or given us an opportunity to be briefed by Um, our logistics uh, coordinators and by our health officials. Uh, There is no way that we can uh, support any Team Canada messages about vaccine distribution if we're reading about it in the newspaper like everyone else. Uh, In terms of the people people in Canada, they all deserve to know uh, whether there's going to be a dramatic slowdown in vaccines. They deserve honest, open, frank information about that. Uh, That certainly is one of his uh, top jobs. Anything less breeds uncertainty. Uh, and so I would really recommend uh, to him that he does that. And if not him, that he transfer that responsibility to the, those who are responsible for vaccine procurement and ensure that they do that on a daily basis until uh, this pandemic is over and until an, a vaccine is in every arm. And Amir, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been really interesting talking to you and I, uh, I hope we do it again soon. 
Oh, you bet. Invite me back anytime. I'd love to. And that that was a total, that was a great question. The last one. I don't feel blindsided at all. Perfect. All right. Well, we're still on good terms. Thanks. Have yes. yourself a fantastic afternoon. You too. Take care. Cheers. That's Enemy Paul, who is the uh, leader of the Green Party of Canada. Yesterday, we were talking about the fact that Nova Scotia has become the first jurisdiction in North America where their organ and tissue donation program is now uh, something that you are going to have to opt out of. If you don't want to donate, you'll have to opt out. Dr. Stephen B. joins us. He's the medical director of Nova Scotia's organ and tissue donation program. Thanks for sparing some time for us. This is a pretty historic moment. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming, and uh, we're pretty pleased with how things have started. And thank you for the invitation this morning. One of the things that struck me as interesting is the motivation to adopt this uh, opt out situation um, when it came to uh, potential organ donors and tissue donors. Can you just give us some background on it? Sure. Uh, it's sort of we got to this place from two separate but important directions. As the medical director of the program, we've been working on trying to improve the system for the last decade, decade and a half. We know there are things that have worked in other programs around the world. And we saw the success of our program starting to decrease. And we were trying to reboot our program with the employment of of things that we knew worked around the world, like donation physicians and trained coordinators and so on. And as we were working on that as a strategy to increase our program, the premier's office phoned to say that the premier was very interested in deemed consent. So we started a conversation about how we could collectively work on making the system better. So legislatively, bringing in deemed consent was a strategy to increase donation, but rebooting the program to support the activity that might be needed for that law uh, served our purpose as well. And collectively, we have a system now that hopefully will increase donation. So we were motivated to put in place things we thought could work, and the Premier was motivated to bring in a law that made us, you know, uh, the first to go with deemed consent. Okay, so you say you were in a position to put things in place that would work. Like what? Well, for example, uh, donation physicians who are critical care trained physicians that can support their local you know, communities in donation-related activities has been very successful in other countries around the world and in other provinces. Trillium in Ontario are the classic example of how that kind of, that kind of uh, resource can be very, very helpful. Well, Nova Scotia didn't have that. I was the only physician... Uh, in the province supported to to work on donation. Having trained uh, specialized coordinators are also important. We had some, but we didn't have enough. We didn't have a quality assurance program that was as robust as we would like. We didn't have a database. So there were things that we thought a good program should have that we weren't getting, and now we do. And we also have much enhanced public and and uh, professional education to support a brand new law coming in. So it's all hopefully going to be synergistic. How important is uh, organ donation and tissue donation um, as a as a conversation? That uh, you know, uh, how important is it that people have this conversation 
in order to in, encourage donations? Well, one of our key messages is that people get informed and and then talk to their loved ones. It is absolutely crucial in our mind that people think about this and, and let the people in their circle know what their thoughts are so that if a crisis occurs, the people around them know what their loved one wants. Because in our legislation, you can opt out. There is a specific way to designate yourself as as, as opting out. But we do have a conversation with the family at end of life. And the question we're posing is, what is the last known wish of your loved one? Well, if people have had this conversation around the kitchen table, people will know what their wishes were, whether they have registered or not. And we're strongly encouraging that those conversations get held. And, uh, and, and that's a way to enhance the profile of this topic, which we know from public surveys is, is very, very uh, – donation is very uh, well-received by the Canadian population, like 90-plus percent say they support donation. And so we want this conversation to become part of the, the kitchen table conversation, and uh, I think that's going to be helpful. Is our own mortality and facing it the thing that's the biggest roadblock when we talk about having these conversations? And I would imagine it's difficult. You know, you got a teenage kid at the table. Maybe I say teenage kid. Maybe they're 18. Maybe they're 19. Um, but, you, you know, it might be hard to bring up. So if something terrible happens, what would you like done with your um, organs and your tissue? It, it might be hard for an adult to bring that up because they're, they're not only faced with their own mortality, uh, but they're also looking at their kids. And that's something that nobody yeah. wants to even entertain. Yeah, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, very few people want to discuss or confront their own mortality. And uh, and yet it's it's a reality. And and teenagers we deal with it in the ICU all the time. I mean, teenagers are bulletproof until they're not. Mm-hmm. And if a teenager is in the ICU in a in a crisis, you know, a hundred of their classmates show up. For teenagers, everyone assumes that the rest of their life is ahead of them, but things do happen. And so a conversation around what they would do if there was a tragic circumstance isn't common. And yet my impression has been that it is remarkably well received. Teenagers may not want to talk about it, but when you start talking about it, they're very engaged and they often have very strong feelings about what they want their community to do. And indeed, one of the drivers of this was that we know from public surveys that when people have made the decision, they really do expect the, the, their families and the community and the healthcare system to respect what their opinion is. And teenagers would certainly fall in that category. So you bring but me to my next question, which, which if I could ask, is um, I know that the, you can opt out. Uh, but if you don't opt out in Nova Scotia for having, you know, being an organ or tissue donor, can a family still step in and say, well, they didn't opt out, but no, we're not going to donate their organs and tissue? Well, the question we're posing, and it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. The question we're posing now is, what was the wish of your loved one? Do we know what they would want? And we will proceed with what they they know to be their loved one's wish. That's a different question than do we have your permission for your loved one to become a donor, which is our, our historical model. 
if we did not know what somebody wants, we do discuss it with the family. And the default position in our new law is that if somebody has not opted out and nobody in their circle thinks that they opt wanted to opt out, then they will proceed with donation. But a conversation with a family where their their loved one says, you know, dad didn't register to opt out, but I know he does not want this to happen. Well, yeah. that counts. That means we won't proceed. Okay, let me ask you this. I, you know, I'm an organ donor. I know that I had to uh, opt in here in Ontario. That's what we have to do. We have to opt in online. And you can choose to leave your body to, to scientific research. You can choose to leave your organs and tissue only for, for donation. Uh, you choose to do both. How do you do that in a situation where it's an, an opt uh, out? Well, can we, you? We've, de- we've developed an opt out registry, but we still have an opt in registry because there's some people that feel strongly enough that they want it to officially be registered. Okay. And and so the law is is addressing some of the people that fall in in, in the gaps, if you will. But a donation to medical science uh, is and research is a is a separate issue. This law does not apply to donation for scientific research or a medical school or whatever. Okay, so you would have to register to do that. So that's that's Correct. interesting. I'm I'm glad we uh, cleared that up with you. Have you heard from other jurisdictions in Canada maybe thinking of following suit? Well, when we announced this, there was lots of interest in, and interestingly, we've got a Health Canada grant with the Nova Scotia Health Authority to very, uh, I guess, a detailed study of our system, what's happened, what's happening now, and what will happen in the next couple of years as we bring this on board and we're going to publish what we learn so that we will have a lot of lessons that I think our provincial colleagues will want to to learn. We've had lots of provinces inquire and people are watching. There's no doubt about that. And in a couple of years, I think we'll have some some science around what's happened here that the rest of our provincial colleagues will will be looking to. Maybe we'll be able to specifically answer the question of whether presumed consent is is right for all systems or or was it the investment in system change that made our donation better because last year was was a remarkably successful year for us and uh, and we're hoping that's that's our new norm Dr. Stephen Beat, I want to thank you for your time and uh, congratulations on this move ahead where organ donation and tissue donation is concerned in Nova Scotia. Thank you very much. Maybe you didn't get the puppy during the pandemic. Maybe you already had a dog. You know, a lot of us have, I hate the term fur babies, but I guess, you know, might as well face facts. A lot of people have uh, pets. Uh, Chris, I don't know about you, but uh, my last dog allowed me to cut her nails. She didn't love it, but I, I could snip her nails. Like that, but a bing, but a boom. Here's your cookie. Thanks for coming out. Right? She'd just look away. This guy, I take out. I can touch his nails. I can rub my fingers on his nails. I bet you I could bite his his nails. I wouldn't, but I bet you I could. But the moment I take out the clippers, he's gone. We actually, his nails are getting so long that the other day he had his paws out and they look like two little beaver teeth. That's how long they are. He's biting his own nails. So we tried to cut them the other <laughs> day. Just nervous. It, you know, we tried to cut him the other day, and the best visual I could give you to tell you, you describe what went on in our house. My husband's holding them. 
I've got the clippers out. We've got like a bag of dog crack, which happens to be those liver liver snaps, you know, the bully buddies. Oh, anybody that has a dog, you know, these stink. They're horrible. They're like basically dehydrated cow liver and dogs love them. They're just like, oh, I'll do anything you want. What? Walk on my back legs. Okay. Spin plates. I'm on it. So, uh, basically what ensued is I got one nail clipped and it looked like I was trying to shoe a bucking Bronco. Imagine trying to shoe a bucking Bronco. So my husband's like, no, we're out. So I say, well, call the vet. And the vet's like, well, we can't do that. We actually, we can only do medical procedures. So, you know, cutting your dog's toenails is not a medical procedure. So we have to wait. So there's a petition right now. Uh, it is uh, growing. I was just on the site. Let me get back to it and I'll tell you exactly where the petition is. But it is at 11,831 signatures. The Ontario government has prepared a list of essential businesses to help stop the spread of COVID-19. However, dog grooming did not make the list, which results in pet owners having no resource to tend to their their, uh, groomable dogs. Yes, I hear you. And so injuries can occur when pet owners attempt to be pet groomers. Yes, also heard because my husband has a major scratch on him now that he did not have before Friday night. So there are people calling for the government to kind of lift some of the restrictions when it comes to our fur babies. Paige Olson joins the show, and she is uh, owner of Turn a New Page Grooming in Niagara. Welcome to the show, Paige. Hi, Kelly and Chris. Thank you for having me. Are you one of the people that has signed on to this petition, or do you have anything to do with this petition where they feel that dog groomers need to start working and keep working? Yeah, so it's funny. Um, I I... I'm very technology, not like I'm not good. I'm very young, but I'm not good with technology at all. One of my clients actually sent me the link to make my own petition. So I did sign the petition that I saw that you posted. And then Mm -hmm. I actually started my own petition as well. So I think it's just getting awareness to the right people to get us back and reopen for all these poor animals that need the care that we can provide. And for, like I just had a client call me the other day and she said that she paid $70 at the vets to do her dog's nails. Wow. So, that's robbery. Yeah. They must've done so, something else. That was it because you have to pay the initial fee. So you have to uh, pay the visit, visit and okay. then you have to pay for the nail cutting, which I mean, I get it in an emergency situation. Absolutely. Because unfortunately right now we aren't allowed to be open. Yeah. So in a pandemic, everybody's struggling financially already. And now things are just costing more money so okay, let me ask you this page if your dog's nails get too long is there can it be to their detriment is there a, you know what can possibly go wrong besides them scratching your floor and yourself yeah absolutely so certain breeds um for example like pups boston terriers their nails actually grow inward so they don't grow straight out they actually mm. grow into their pads so mm. for example i have one of my clients is a pug. I had to unfortunately tell her that she had to go to the vet and tell them that it is an emergency as now the nails are right in the bottom of this pug's pads. So now she's had to pay the vet visit. She's had to pay to get the vet to cut the dog's nails. And now her dog had to be put on antibiotics because the nails went right into the bottom of the dog's pads. So that's, that's the worst case scenario. And with a lot of different breeds in all, all over the world, I mean, it, it's going to happen. And like I said, not all dogs, it is, it's not superficial. I mean, and I'm not a veterinary, so I can't mm-hmm. for sure say this, but definitely imagine you walking around with your toenails not cut and wearing shoes. 
I like that's got to cause some some damage to your feet, to your body. So imagine a dog that has really long nails and they're walking all the time on those nails and not properly on their feet. I know a lot of us are, you know, especially during this pandemic, you're looking for breeds that don't shed. A lot of those breeds are becoming really popular, but they also have to be groomed. They have to be cut. What's the importance behind grooming them during a pandemic? It's not just aesthetic, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, here at my shop, I specialize in uh, dogs that um, have been recommended to go to the vets to be sedated. So, I mean, to have an owner that wants to groom their dog like I do, it's not safe for the dog, first of all, because, I mean, you're working with moving objects, so the dog could get hurt. And then also the owners could get injured. Like I said, I work with a lot of difficult breeds, whether it's dogs, cats, uh, rabbits, ferrets, that don't want to be groomed. And unfortunately, I have a staff that I hire, obviously, and together we can get these dogs done. But like I said to you, I specialize in all the animals that nobody else wants to groom. So unfortunately, not even the vets want to take these animals or they're going to be sedated. And having these animals sedated, especially with senior breeds, is very risky for them to not wake up. So, and actually another thing is, there is no vet in the Niagara region right now that is offering emergency grooming services. Okay, let's talk about what you're doing as far as uh, protocol, COVID protocol, to make it a safe working environment for your staff, for your customers, that makes you feel that you should be allowed to open during this lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. So what I do for my customers is they call me, they pull up into my driveway, they call me as soon as they get there. Um, their dog is either in the back seat or the front seat, or the customer can come out. Um, and well, and then we keep our distance. Mm-hmm. I take the dog from them on on their own personal leash. I am wearing gloves, just I mean, just to be extra cautious. I bring the dog into the salon. Not one person steps foot into my shop except for myself and my staff. And then I take the gloves off. I recycle them or I throw them out. And then um, obviously after I've taken the leash off, I do have a disinfectant spray that I do spray on the leash so that when I'm giving the dog back to the owner, if I have to handle it without gloves on, I can. And then I put my gloves back on to give the dog back to the owner. So, I mean, I try and bath every dog right away as soon as they come in. But I mean, especially after a pandemic, a lot of these dogs need to be shaved before they even get in the tub because having that shampoo sit in all their mats is just is you can't bath a dog that's fully matted unfortunately so i mean i'm contactless nobody comes into my salon we my employee and i wear masks we did have plexiglass for like when the pandemic wasn't as mm-hmm. bad and our numbers were going down we were allowing one person in our shop at a time but they had to wear a mask i like i said i have plexiglass but since the numbers have went up i thought to protect myself and my my employee I would then go out, one of us would go outside and we would collect the dogs that way and we would wear gloves. So Obviously, obviously you, you know a lot of dog owners. Are you hearing complaints about people as well about dog walkers not being able to do their job? You're allowing people in to do house cleaning uh, under this lockdown. Do you think it's important that we also allow people to have their dogs walked and that service should resume? I do believe that essential like essential service workers or people that are working still definitely should be allowed to have a dog walker come into their home for sure. Absolutely. Especially if, well, I I think that all animal services should be up and running because 
I have just seen so many of the side effects of our last lockdown and how unsocialized dogs are. Yeah. I mean, a puppy should be getting groomed. I would say, like, as soon as you get your puppy, you should bring your dog to, or cat or animal to the groomer right away because it just sets them up for success for the rest of their life to be groomed. So, so there's a lot of dogs a- that are going to, um, because they haven't been groomed, get a bit of an aversion to the brush like my dog has. And let me tell you, when you have a border collie that doesn't like a brush, it's not a fun No, absolutely. So unfortunately, all these people are getting excited. They're off. They have the time to spend with these animals, but they're not, they don't have the proper resources to care for their animals fully, right? So we're just setting ourselves, well, yeah, we're getting set up for failure. So I mean, I can't tell you how many dogs I had come in after the last pandemic. They were, I think, about seven, seven to seven months to a year and the owners had been grooming them for their first few months of their life because we were in the pandemic. And then after, because groomers and everybody's so backlogged with catching up with all of the dogs that they didn't groom, all these new dog owners or cat owners don't have a groomer, most of them. So now they're hunting. So they're, but they're waiting even longer. So like my normal wait time to get into my shop is maybe a week or two. But after the pandemic, I was looking at three weeks and I know a lot of groomers in the area, they book out for the whole year and they right. and you can't speed this up. I mean, it takes as long as it takes to groom a dog. Absolutely. And you know what? Like, 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 I think I read an article um, or I read my own article that I was just in and okay. they were saying that most groomers groom between four to eight dogs a day. Well, yeah. like there's thousands and millions of dogs and cats out there. So to get caught up, I mean, there's only so many of us groomers out there. And unfortunately, like I said, the new pet owners are getting the brunt of it, but also our older pet owners are getting the brunt of it. Like look at a lot of the senior citizens that have companion animals that they can't care for properly. And unfortunately we're so low on um, nursing home staff, I'm sure. And they can't help care for the animals either. So it's just, it's, it's, it's a ripple effect. Thanks so much for tuning into the program. Always a pleasure having you. If you want to join us, we broadcast live Monday through Friday, nine till noon on global news radio, 640 Toronto.